Hey, a few weeks ago, we started a new sermon series uh, entitled Simply Seven. Uh, everything you need to know in seven words. If you've missed any of the messages thus far in that series, I'd encourage you to go back online or on the podcast and check those out. These words kind of build on one another. And what we're going to be talking about in the future makes a lot more sense if you know what we've covered in the past. Uh, but if you are new or haven't, haven't heard those, let me kind of get us on the same page this morning. Let me make sure you understand the basic gist of what we're doing right now. Uh, a lot of things in life, uh, if you think about it, turn out to be way too complicated, don't they? Turn out to become way too complex from toothpaste options to investment opportunities uh, to the healthcare plans. I don't know about you, but a lot of things in life just overwhelm me, make me feel like I'm way in over my head. And that's why there are 25,000 uh, For Dummies books out there. I kid you not. Anybody ever purchase a book uh, like that before? You are a self-proclaimed dummy. It's okay, you're in good company. Three million other people have purchased a Four Dummies book. And that's because we want things to be simple. We want them to be straightforward, right? It's kind of like Nathan's number, 60 cents a day for us with Columbine teachers. Man, they could probably buy a Starbucks, right, if we did that. But six cents a day, we'll give him a gift card. And he went to Columbine, and so it's important that we, we support those teachers, right? I mean, it's like we believe in you guys still. Right? There's still hope for Columbine. Anyway, sorry. Uh, simple and straightforward. That's what we want to have happen uh, in most of life. And whether you realize it or not, it's easy for us to confuse folks with the message of Christ. It's easy for us to make that message super complicated. You start talking to somebody about a little science and Holy Spirit, a young earth, old earth, end times, what you read online, what your college professor said, and suddenly a message intended to draw people closer to the Lord is actually driving them away from the Lord. It's just way too complicated. It's just way too complex. That's what we're trying to remedy in this series, right? Because for those of us in the church, sometimes the message can get confusing. And if that's true for us, then what is it like for those outside of the church? Church, I want you to take a look around. There's a lot of empty seats in this auditorium. For one, we changed time, so now everybody's going to the 9 a.m. Didn't expect that to happen. But hey, uh, for another, is it because most people are just confused by the message of Christianity? Are they unsure or uncertain what it's about? Do they feel like it's too complex, too convoluted? Well, maybe we can remedy that as a church. Maybe we can make it so simple and so straightforward that they get it, that they actually want to get it. So we're trying to say everything there is to say like Jesus did in a handful of words. And in ancient Hebrew culture, the number seven symbolized and signified a completion and wholeness. And so we've chosen seven words that we think can say everything there is to say about your story, uh, your neighbor's story, and this story in particular can say everything there is to say about those words. I'm excited to share with you uh, this morning two words, two for the price of one. So we've got a lot to talk about. Let's talk about the next two words in our series. Church, have you ever had something go from bad to worse? I know that I have. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe last week you lost your first fantasy football game uh, in, in the league with all your friends and to top it all off, your star running back dislocated his wrist, the guy you paid a lot of money for and now he's out for the entire season. Anybody else ever have that happen to them? Great, awesome. I'll be taking uh, encouragement cards and sympathy cards in the foyer if you'd like. Uh, or maybe you've had a plumber inform you that that little leak you thought was happening in your basement, I kid you not, turned out to be three Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water seeping under your building. Happened to us back in Albuquerque. Come find me afterwards, I'll tell you. Or maybe that little check engine light came on, the one you hate to see on that dashboard, and it turns out the engine is kaput. You need a new one of those. It didn't say check engine. It said say throw away engine, Right? I've personally experienced all those things so I can resonate and relate with the following quote from Humphrey Bogart. Things are never so bad, they can't be made worse. Do you understand that? Do you feel that? Have you 
experienced that in your own life? Well, that's what happens in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. See, the first of our seven words was the word creator. And it's the fact that, that God made this beautiful canvas, this beautiful picture called creation. He handcrafted it. He put all the details on there himself. And we start there in the story because the Bible makes it clear that's where everything gets its start. You see, the, the world is here from particles to pets, from people to mountain peaks. Everything is here, not because of some giant cosmic accident, not because some random pond scum randomly mutated over the course of millions of years and created life as we know it. It's all here because someone made it, because there's a creator behind it. There's a beautiful artist, this incredibly powerful um, creator who, who's so creative, who's so um, ingenious, if you would, that he made all there is, all that we can see and even all that we can't. But as we learned last week, our short-sightedness, our selfishness, our tendency to side with the serpent, what the Bible calls sin, it comes in and it wrecks this good canvas, right? It comes in and it contaminates it and it covers it. The Bible talks about this, the word curse. That's our second word in the series. So first there's a great creator, then the curse comes in and it contaminates and it wrecks and it ruins the beautiful creation that he made. And I got a kick out of the fact that last week when I came up here and I spray painted this, this thing, uh, there was a collective gasp. I appreciate that. Like, because <gasps> inside I was going, no, 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 no. But many of you came up to me afterwards and you said, oh, I thought you had it covered in plastic wrap. Or I thought there was something over this that you were just going to magically be like, and Jesus does this. Wee! Ah, <laughs> oh, church, if, if only it were that easy. If only sin were on the surface. If only the curse was skin deep, but it's not. The cur- it's part of this now. It's buried, it's entrenched in the very fiber of creation. The curse is everywhere, and we cannot escape it. And that brings us to our our third word in the series. I hate to admit to this, guys, but Becca and I, we're struggling with something right now. It's been about a year, year and a half or so. Uh, we've asked some folks for some help. We can't, we can't seem to get past it. Uh, church is a safe place, or it should be, right, to air your dirty laundry, so here we go. We're addicted. Becca and I are addicted to this. It's called prison break. Uh, anybody? <laughs> anybody else? Fox, show, it's kind of old school, I know, but that's kind of how we roll. We are so addicted to this show. And I felt the need to just publicly confess this. It feels a little bit better, but I I didn't really feel like, it's okay, pastor, right? We're addicted to this. We will swear that we're gonna go to bed early this night, right? Or or only watch one episode, and what happens? You watch three or four episodes, you're up way too late. And I know you think Becca's like this cute little sweet girl. No, no, she's the culprit. I will look over to her and she's like this, one more. And I'm like, what are you talking? No, we are addicted to this. But here's the thing, right? It, it's one thing to joke about our lack of self-control or restraint when it comes to shows. But it's no laughing matter when it comes to our lack of self-control or restraint when it comes to sin. You see, once humanity ate from the tree, once they believed that they knew better than God, once they wanted to push God out of their lives, that they were better off without God, once they made him a smaller part of the equation or just removed his truth from their equation, Right, sin started spinning out of control. It might have started so small. It might have started so innocently. I mean, one little conversation, one tree, one little piece of fruit, what's the big deal? Well, suddenly when that happened, everything went haywire. 
After the initial fall, right, Adam and Eve, we see there's problems in their relationship. They're accusing one another. Well, in just one more chapter, humanity goes from accusing to attacking one another. Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, they get in a fight, and Cain kills his brother Abel in cold blood. Then a few verses later, another one of their descendants, a guy named Lamech, boasts about how vengeful and how cruel he is, even more so than Cain. And then we read this in Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Guys, think about that. From paradise in Eden, chapter one, chapter two, to perpetual evil in all the earth, chapter six. We got there in four chapters. That's what you call from bad to worse. And you would have thought the horror of the flood would have kind of opened humanity's eyes to the seriousness of sin as well as the seriousness of God and how much he's serious about his good canvas. But as soon as the flood is over, a couple hours later, we feel that, or we see that humanity's already sinning again. It may have cleansed the earth, but it did nothing to cleanse the human heart. It smelled just as bad as ever. And here's why. This is tough for us to admit to especially in our culture, because we live in a culture that's kind of like you're captain of your own ship, you're totally awesome, you can do anything you put your mind to. Here's the truth that the Bible lays out for us. Sin is not something that you and I do. Sin is something you and I are enslaved to. Sin is not something that you and I do, it's something that we are enslaved to. It's not just a problem in our lives, it's this power in our lives that continually takes control, that continually takes over, that continually messes things up, and we're powerless to do anything about it. I can't just pull off plastic wrap. It's just not that easy. It's so entrenched. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it, Romans 7. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, that's what I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work deep within me. And this language is intense, but you know why? Because the Apostle Paul understands the stronghold of sin in your life is just as intense. This language might sound extreme, but it's because the Apostle Paul understands the stronghold of sin in your life is extreme. He is saying there is a force out there that is much stronger than he is. It's strong-arming him. It's forcing him. It's coercing him to live this life in a way he doesn't want to live it. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 8, isn't it? Those who sin, uh, me, uh, you, you're a slave to sin. This isn't just something that happened last week with the can of spray paint. This is something that happens each and every moment in our lives and in our hearts. This is the dynamic that's present. If I were to open up your mind and open up your heart and open up your spirit, this is what we would see. There is this darkness that is deep in there. And if we're honest, man, if, if we're just, just going to talk openly about it, Paul's struggle is our struggle, isn't it? I mean, we know we shouldn't give that woman a second glance, but man, she looks good today. We, we know we shouldn't speed up and tailgate the guy that cut me off on 470 because he needs to learn a lesson. Oh, I'm going to do it anyway, right? I know I shouldn't take that $1,000 tax break because I didn't really donate $1,000 worth of clothes to Goodwill, but man, it'd be nice come tax season. And I know I shouldn't look over and take a peek at that kid's test next to me, but I really got to get an A in this class. But we know we shouldn't lie about this one thing or go into debt to buy that other thing or worry or be anxious about anything, but I do it. I do it anyway. Why? Because this 
is a slave. I'm a slave to this. This this is a captor over me, a power controlling me. Even though we know what is right, we still end up doing what's wrong. Even though we know where the road leads, we still go down it anyway. Even though we know what the consequences are going to be, we still make the same choice. That's because sin isn't just on the surface of our lives. It is deeply entrenched in the fiber of our lives. That brings us to our third word in the series, captivity. Everybody say captivity. Think about how many of God's people, as you read through this book, right, or, or, or study the course of human history, think about how many of God's people spend time in the slammer. It's crazy to me. God's people are always locked up. They're always in jail, right? From Joseph to Daniel to the Israelites to the disciples. I mean, you have Egypt, Babylon, Rome. Everybody's behind bars, it seems like. And I started wondering, what's, what's with that? What's behind that? Well, maybe the Lord is trying to say those stories, that, that reality, that truth, that my people are being held captive by something, that's not just true for this. It's true in here. It's true right in my own story. I'm a captive to something. I'm a slave to something. And maybe the Lord gives us all these stories of imprisonment to show me I'm in prison to sin. I think Paul would say it's exactly what's happening. And he sounds a little crazy here in Romans, doesn't he? Like the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. It's like, What? But he would turn to us and he would say, don't think that I'm crazy. You're crazy for thinking you're free from this. You're crazy for thinking you have control over this. You're crazy for thinking you can clean this up. A friend of mine was shaving his face one time and there was this really huge gash on his neck. It was right by his Adam's apple. And I have a larger than average Adam's apple. So I was caring about him and and concerned. I was like, dude, what happened there? He's like, oh, that's just a tiny little nick. Like a little nick, two millimeters over and you're bleeding to death on the floor. It's not a little nick. It reminds me of the Black Knight from Mighty Python. Remember that? Right? Flesh wound. Flesh wound here. This is just a flesh wound. That's how we typically approach sin, isn't it? That's how we typically talk about our own stuff. That's how we talk about this dynamic in our own life. I'm fine. I can handle it. It's no big deal. Really? You're missing a few limbs there, dude. That's why self-help books, they just crack me up. Self-help, you're a slave to this. You don't need some self-help. Right? Self-help helps you clean up your, your prison cell. Oh, great, you got the prettiest cell of all of us, but we're still enslaved. We're still entrapped. And in fact, when we try to do anything about this situation, we just make a mess of it. I mean, we try to come on here and be like, you know what, my life's not that bad. I'm just going to fix it really fast. I'm just going to work really hard or just pray really hard or just go to church more often. Why isn't this working? Why is nothing happening? We just make it worse. Why? Because you're a slave to sin. You don't have power over it. When we spray painted this thing, it was going to be true for your story no matter what you did. And I put everything on here from uh, uh, paint thinner to bathroom cleaner to Windex to water. Ain't nothing working. It's not going to happen. You're not going to clean up your own life. We've tried our best. We made a mess of this thing. We're just making it worse. And at this point, I don't know about you, but I kind of look at this thing and I'm like, you know, just trash it. Like, what's the good? What's the, what's the use, right? I mean, I even made it originally. And I'm kind of like, I don't even want it anymore. It's pretty ugly. Let's just get rid of it. I don't know about you, but, but you'd probably just say, with this canvas of creation that has been so cursed, so contaminated, it's probably just, probably just throw it away. Just throw it out. Put it in the trash. That's where it deserves to be. That's not what God does. That's not what he does at all. And that's our fourth word, covenant. Everybody say Covenant. How many of you have ever noticed on the back of a uh, glass bottle, there'd be an inscription or maybe a label that says uh, cash refund, right? In these following states, five cents. Anybody ever seen that before? 
That's pretty common, right? Well, what that means is it's literally called a redemption value. And what that means is that someone in, in those particular states, they are willing to pay a certain price for this bottle, for this piece of trash. What, what we view as relatively worthless, because we're done with it, is incredibly worthwhile because they want to do more things or other things with it. That little inscription literally means someone wants to take this into their possession again and they are willing to pay a price to do it. Christian, tell me you are starting to see the connection here. That's exactly what God does with this cursed canvas of creation. In response to everything that has happened, in response to all the mess that we have made, in response to all the harm that we have caused, you would think God would just trash it all. He'd just throw it all away. At least he would yell at us or scream at us or punish us for doing this. But that's not what he does at all. Instead of criticism, instead of condemnation, God offers something called a covenant. A covenant. Covenant's a strange word for us. It's a word that we don't use a whole lot. It's a word we don't hear very often in our day-to-day business. It sounds really important, but we're not really sure if it is. It's like a word kind of like plethora or bamboozle or vivacious. Or like say those words at work tomorrow, people are gonna be like, wow, you are an idiot, right? It's a really smart sounding word, but you have no clue what it means. That's how it is with covenant. So let me clear that up for you real fast. Covenant is, in my opinion, one of the most important words in this entire book. This thing is going from bad to worse. The trajectory of the story is only getting worse. And then suddenly the word covenant comes in. Suddenly the story is changed and it hinges on one single word, the word covenant. At its most basic level, covenant is this agreement between God and people. And it's an agreement where both sides make these binding promises to one another. And the Old Testament is full of these covenants, these agreements that God makes. There's the covenant with Noah, where God agrees to never flood the earth again. There's the covenant with Abraham, where he promises to bless his family, so he will in turn go out and bless every family. There's a covenant with Moses, where he promises to give his people lives and a land of their own. There's a covenant with David, where the promises someone from his family and his, his lineage will reign forever and ever. There's all these covenants. And I wish we had time to go into more details, but, but each of these covenants... They come at this, this moment in time in the storyline where it's going from bad to worse or it's about to go bad to worse or it has the potential of going from bad to worse and suddenly God comes in and he says, enough of the captivity, enough of the curse. It's time for a covenant. It's time to change the storyline around. It's time to flip it on its head. He comes in in each of these moments and he says, I want this back. I'm not through with this yet and I'm gonna pay a great price to take it into my possession. It's the redemption value. The promise is made to Adam and Eve. The promise is made to Noah. The promise is made to Abraham. The promise is made to Moses. The promise is made to David. The promise is made to you. You see, God has offered a covenant to you. God has made and provided and entered into a covenant with you. Let me show you Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant. He says that I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. Did you just hear that? Did you hear that agreement? Did you hear that promise? Did you hear that covenant? He says to anyone and everyone who would ever believe in him, who would ever belong to him, that he is gonna undo everything that has been done. 
He is going to reverse the consequences of the curse that we all live in. He is going to fix that which is broken, made right that which is wrong, save that which is lost, bring life to that which is dead. That's the new covenant. That's the promise. And he had you in mind when he made it. This has value to me, the creator says. Your life has value to me, and I'm going to redeem it. I'm promising right now to pay a hefty price to take it back into my possession and to infuse it with the life that I originally intended for it to have. And this is not an idea. This is not a possibility. This is not a suggestion. This is not just some great hope. This is a covenant. Let me show you why that's so important. Covenants don't work like contracts. That's kind of how we think of them. Isn't it contracts kind of the oh, same thing? Well, not exactly. Most of us are bound in life to these different contracts that we're in. If you have a mortgage, you're under contract, right? You have a, a contractual obligation. If you're leasing something, you're under a contract. Let's take our cell phone, for example. When you go and, and pay a certain carrier, then you enter into a contract with that carrier. Although you're like, no, I'm T-Mobile, no contracts. What up? It's like, no, stop, you're still under contract, okay? But here's how it works. You go into the, the, the store and you say, okay, I want, I want service. I want a certain number of minutes and a certain amount of data. Actually, no, I'm a, I'm a baller, so I just want unlimited, right? Some of you out there, I understand. Okay, so you go and you say, I want this. And they say, okay, great. We will give you that in return for what? Money. You sign a contract and we promise to give you X, Y, Z in terms of minutes and, and data and you pay us some money. Okay, great. Now you're under contract. You're in a relationship with them. But let's say that one of the two sides ends their relationship or they, they don't come through on their end of the agreement. What happens? Well, everything's kind of null and void, right? Let's say you don't pay your bill. Let's say you just for some reason or other just forget and, and, and you don't care. You think it's just going to happen anyway. Like it's just floating in the sky and this little machine will take it out of the air for you, no cost. Well, what happens one day when you go to use your phone? <laughs> Disabled, right? Dead. It's not going to work. No chance. Good luck getting it to work on your own. You didn't come through on your end of the agreement. You didn't pay. They're not going to provide. Makes sense. All right, now let's say on the flip side, they don't provide. You've paid all your bills. Everything's up to speed, up to date. And, and you go to check your phone one day and it's not working. No service, no coverage. Like, what's the problem? A couple of days later, same thing. A couple of weeks later, when you peel yourself off the floor and realize your life is not over, but close, you call your service provider. And you say, listen, listen, listen. I'm not going to what? I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to come through on my end of the agreement because you didn't provide. This is a mutual obligation here, right? You do what you have to do, and I do what I have to do. And if you don't, then I won't. I want credit. I want money back, whatever it is. That's how we understand contracts. And what's scary is that's how we understand God's covenant. We think that God's covenant is this contract that we've entered into. Oh, yeah, sure, there are, there are pieces that we play. There's a part that we play in this covenant. But when God enters into this contract... He is going to come through on his end of the agreement no matter what. Well, I don't know about that. You know, the Bible does say God helps those who help themselves. God plays his part and we play our part. Wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God is going to be faithful, like Christiana was saying before, no matter what. No matter what you do. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, last story. Then we'll, then we'll spend some time in worship. Genesis 15. God's entering into one of these covenants with a guy named Abram. It's a really odd chapter. Not a lot of things going on. I don't quite understand. But God comes down and he initiates this relationship. He initiates this conversation with this guy named Abram. And he says, I'm going to do all of these things for you. I promise. It's a covenant, Abram. And Abram's like, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. Like, I don't really know who you are. I don't know if I can trust you. So prove it to me, God. Prove to me that you are committed to this covenant. So God says, okay. 
go gather up a couple different animals. So he gathers up several different animals. Okay, now I want you to kill the animals and I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to lay their, their bodies on different sides of a pathway. Super strange, super gross. Not exactly sure what's happening here, but stay with me. This was a common practice in ancient times. Literally, if we were making a covenant together and we wanted to prove that we were serious about what we were going to do, we would kill these animals, we'd lay them on both sides of this little aisleway right here, and then when the blood was spilling down the pathway, we would both walk through the pathway. We'd both walk through all the blood. And here's why. We'd be saying, if I don't come through on my end, if I don't do what I just swore I would do, you can do to me what you just did to those animals. May I be cursed. May I be killed like one of these animals if I don't do what I said I would do. You've heard about like signing your life in blood. This is literally walking through the blood to say I'm so serious about this. But here's the thing. In Genesis 15, God walks down this pathway. It says there's a flaming torch in this pot of smoke and he's walking down it. And guess where Abram's this whole time? Guess what he's doing this whole time? The dude's asleep in the corner. Abram has fallen asleep. We're like, wake up. What are you, this is such an important moment. Well, you know what? God put him to sleep. It says God had him go into a deep sleep and he woke up right when God finished walking that bloody path. And then, you know what the text doesn't say? It doesn't say that Abram walks the path. It doesn't say that God requires Abram to show that he's serious. It doesn't say that he asks him to show his commitment level. It doesn't say that Abram is then said, uh, he puts his life on the line for this agreement. No, it's a very one-sided agreement. God is the only one who says, I am so serious about this. In fact, I am so serious about this. You can take my life if I don't do what I say. But more than that, you can take my life because you're not going to do what you say. I will be both sides of the agreement and I will take the penalty of both sides if neither one comes through, God says. That's a covenant. You with me? That's no contract. That's no, I scratch my back, you scratch yours. Nope, wrong. You, uh, you don't understand what I'm saying. I could scratch my own back, stupid, sorry. I am so serious about my commitment to you, God says. I'm so serious about this promise to restore this. I'm so serious that I'm gonna make this right again. I will do it no matter what. No matter what. And here's something you gotta walk away with. You gotta, you gotta just chew on for a little while. God's promises are not dependent on your faithfulness and they are not invalidated by your faithlessness or even your failures. Think about that, church. God's promises, they're not dependent upon your faithfulness and they're not invalidated by your failures. God says to Abram, I'm so committed to bringing about the good that I originally wanted for you to experience. I'm so committed to this canvas being this beautiful thing that I originally intended for it to be. I'm gonna lay down my life for you. God is proving that he would do everything he promised no matter if Abram did anything that he was promised. He is so devoted to fixing this. He is so committed to cleaning this up. He's so devoted to redeeming each and every one of us that he was willing to walk down a bloody path alone one day to show Abram just how serious he was. And I think that foreshadows another bloody path that he would walk down one day in the future. And again, he's gonna walk that road alone. He's not gonna ask you to make this commitment. He's not gonna ask you to make this sacrifice. He's not gonna ask you to show you're that serious. He's that serious. It doesn't matter what you are. He is so committed to you, so in love with what was before, 
He's going to fix it and redeem it no matter the cost. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. Okay, here we go. For those of you who feel as if this is your life, this is your dynamic, even those of you who aren't fully aware of that yet, I just really want to encourage you. You are captive to a power that is much stronger than you are. Try as you might to fix yourself or help yourself or pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you're just not going to be able to. Sin is a slave owner and it owns you. You're being held captive by this curse. But in the middle of that, as things are going from bad to worse, there is a God who comes down and he makes a promise to you. He comes down and he assures you. He enters into a covenant and he says, I will fix this. I will make this right again. I will clean this up and make it so beautiful. I won't even remember what happened to it originally. It'll be so good again. That's the promise I want you to live in. And again, we might have to wait for it, but we can take it to the bank. It's gonna happen. God is faithful on his promises. Let me pray for us, and then we'll spend a few more minutes in worship. Team, why don't you come back up? God, thank you that you are the kind of God that you are. You could have just let us sit and, and kind of uh, destroy ourselves in our sin, God. You could have just let us sit there and, and wallow around in our own pity and our own mess. The curse could have been the beginning, middle, and end of our story, God, but it's just not true. As many of us are feeling like held captive by sin, God, that we just can't overcome this and we can't get through this, we're so glad that we don't worship another God who says, well, just figure it out. Just get it done. Try harder. Do more. No, God, you come down and you say, you can't do anything. <laughs> You've done enough. <laughs> You've done enough. And the promise now is that you will come and that you will do something, that you will re redeem and remedy and repair and rescue us from the curse, from the captivity that we're experiencing, from the, the captivity the whole world is experiencing for that. We just wanna sing your praise. Thank you for making that promise, God. And many of us, we doubt that promise because it's, it's slow in coming. We don't even see it in our own life, let alone in the whole world. And you God, help us to believe. The promise is so sure. The promise is so true. You are so committed to redeeming us that you're willing to walk a bloody path. And not one between animals, but one between two thieves. You walk this bloody path, God, to say, I'm willing to lay it all down. If I don't do what I said, you can kill me. But more than that, God, because we don't do what we say, we killed you. And we had to, and you had to die, and we're just so thankful for that. And so we just want to sing praise to you right now, God. You are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The trajectory line of our lives and our world was going from bad to worse, and yet you came in and you made a covenant. You said, I will make this right. I will make this good again. So we just want to sit with you and worship you and say thank you. That's what we do now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.